Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today. If you're listening right now, I want you to go on Twitter or X, whatever you're calling it nowadays, and tweet hashtag feelbetternick. Nick couldn't make it today. He'll be back next week. And just a heads up, we are not going to be talking about Hurricane Adalia today. Um, I am recording this Wednesday night. I don't have time to record tomorrow, unfortunately. And, you know, the, the hurricane just made landfall in Florida today, this morning. So we'll talk a bit about what happened, the fallout, and, you know, hopefully a very successful recovery next week. But for now, we're going to get right into the show. As I said before the intro music, it's me by myself today. We're going to try something a little different. Um, I'm not going to be diving into like crazy discussions since I have no one to bounce ideas off of. So a lot of this is just going to be me off the top. Um, yeah, let's see how it goes. So first quick hit of the week is by Jennifer McDermott and Jennifer Cinco Kelleher of the Associated Press who write Hawaii Power Utility Takes Responsibility for First Fire on Maui but Faults County Firefighters. Hawaii's electric utility took responsibility for its power lines starting a wildfire on Maui, but added that the county firefighters were also to blame in how they responded to that initial fire. So Hawaiian Electric Company cited power lines that fell due to high winds as the cause of the electrical fire that led to the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history, but they added that the firefighters should not have declared that first fire contained and then left the scene. A second fire broke out afterwards, and that's the one that's believed to have taken off, gotten out of control, and resulted in at least 115 deaths and immense amounts of damage, including the loss of 2,000 structures. This may sound like a semantics thing or a way for Hawaii's utility to shift the blame and say, you know, it wasn't our fault that this happened, but there's actually a monetary reason behind doing this. There are billions of dollars in damages that need to be paid to deal with the fire. So there's a quote from Mike Morgan of the attorneys Morgan and Morgan in this article that I want to read quickly. And it says, by taking responsibility for causing the first fire, then pointing the finger on a fire that started 75 yards away and saying, that's not our fault. We started it, but they should have put it out. I'm not sure how that will hold up. So further issues from the article arise in the fact that the utility's 60,000 poles are mostly made from wood and are not made to withstand 105 mile per hour winds. And that means that those utility poles are far behind the national standard that was established in 2002. So my thoughts on this are just, I just think from a semantics issue, it doesn't make sense to say the first fire was all our fault second fire wasn't and sure like we're like i said it's semantics we're arguing words but i think in this case words matter because like the article points out it's not just words here it's it's a monetary reason to say that this was not our fault this was someone else's fault and 
maybe this is me oversimplifying things. Maybe this is me being a bit naive in, in how I'm handling it. But to say that it's the firefighters' fault for how they responded to it, you know, there might not have been a fire for them to respond to if Hawaiian Electric Utility or Hawaiian Electric Company, excuse me, um, had utility poles that were up to those 2002 standards. And, and we're not talking about standards that were established last year. We're talking about 21-year-old standards that these utility poles did not conform to. So when you have high winds and those poles can tip over, you know, you run the risk of something like this happening. And in this case, sure, I, I understand saying, well, the first fire was our fault, but if that first fire was contained, then we wouldn't have had a second fire. And maybe that's true, but I think you can't really point that finger unless you are perfectly up to standard and at absolutely zero fault. So to me, just in taking responsibility for that first fire, you kind of assume responsibility for what the fallout from that fire is. Our next story is by the BBC's Mark Pointing, who writes, London ULES expansion, do clean air zones reduce air pollution? So there is now officially a charge for drivers of the highest emitting vehicles while driving in London as the ultra low emission zone or ULEZ, U-L-E-Z, has been expanded. This article cites the fact that all of London's boroughs, like many cities in the UK, exceed air pollution limits recommended by the World Health Organization. So London's mayor decided that the ULEZ needed to cover outer London as well. We talked about air pollution's impact on human health on last week's show. So if you're interested, you know, scroll down in your feed, check that one out. But the short of it is that it impacts respiratory systems. Cardiovascular health can increase dementia, can increase depression. You know, there's a multitude of factors that go into why air pollution is, is bad for us as a whole. And in this case, transportation emissions from cars and trucks are a major source of air pollution, especially in densely populated and heavily driven in cities. The ULEZ was established in central London in 2019, and then two years later was expanded, but now covers all of outer London as well. The authors write that most studies show clean air zones reduce air pollution, and the ULEZ is no different. By October of last year, nitrous oxide levels near roadsides dropped by 46% in central London and 21% in inner London. Air quality improved along ULEZ boundaries as well. A German study on clean air zones suggests that people will switch to lower emissions or emissions-free vehicles rather than avoid the area. And I think that's something that's really important to highlight is that this isn't something saying you absolutely cannot drive in London. You can't drive in outer London. You can't drive in central or inner London. No, you can. You just have to pay. In this case, it's 12 pounds and change, but you have to pay if your vehicle is going to be heavily emitting CO2 heavily emitting nitrous oxides, heavily emitting these greenhouse gases that are sure they're, they're warming the planet as a whole and contributing to that. But on this, we're talking about a local level. So on that local level, it's making people in London less healthy to be exposed to all of those cars all of the time. So what this German study that is referenced in the article suggests is that people aren't going to change their lifestyle, but what they're going to do is switch to cars that might be able to avoid those fines instead of paying those fines or finding a way to drive around London. So 
I think this is a really interesting topic, especially for someone like me who lives in New York City, because there's this whole debate right now with congestion pricing in lower Manhattan. And it's that there are too many cars in the city. This city has amazing public transportation, but it still feels like it's a car-driven city at times, um, especially as you get into certain neighborhoods where the roads are narrow, but the cars are not in this country. You know, cars in America are much wider, much bigger than a lot of their foreign counterparts. So what we're seeing is just streets that don't feel pedestrian friendly, streets that don't feel like this is a city that has an unbelievable subway system, specifically in Manhattan I'm talking about here. But we're seeing a debate about how cars can be changed and how our relationship with cars can be changed. And the way to do that is to charge people and to make cars less exciting to drive or less attractive to drive in certain areas. So whether it's London saying if your car emits certain amount of nitrous oxides or carbon dioxides, whatever it is, you're going to have to pay a fine. Or if it's New York saying whatever you're driving, you're going to have to pay a toll. You know, there's ways that cities are going to have to get cleaner by getting more cars off the road. And I want to close with the last thing that this article says, and that's reductions in air pollution from other areas, such as agriculture, construction, and wood burning inside of homes are also needed to bring air quality to safer levels. The ULES expansion might have a small overall impact on air quality, but every single measure adds up. And what that quote is referencing is that the study basically found that this is going to have a huge impact on roadsides. So the closer you are to that point source pollution, meaning where the pollution is coming from, the greater the impact. And that's to be expected. You know, this smog that's coming from your tailpipe or whatever kind of emissions are, are coming from the car, it's going to dissipate the further it gets away from that point. But at the source, it's going to have a lot of emissions just densely packed. And the more cars there are in that small area, the more emissions. So you're seeing a much larger increase on roadsides than you are in, you know, the outskirts of London further and further away from densely packed roads. But like I said, every single measure adds up, you know, for every one of these clean air zones in the world, we're talking about less emissions. We're talking about less air pollution for the people nearby. And we're talking about ultimately cleaner air for people to breathe. And, you know, who's going to be against that? All right, moving on to our third story. Um, we're not going to do an environmental policy roundup this week for two reasons. One, Nick isn't here, and uh, it's not as fun with me just rattling off a couple quick headlines, quick stories. So I also want to take this time to spend a bit more on the next story, which is by Jeff Brumfield. Kat Lonsford, Rachel Carson, Rebecca Ramirez, and Regina G. Barber of NPR. And they write, we unpacked Japan's plan to release Fukushima wastewater. Last Thursday, Japanese workers began to release treated radioactive water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in the Pacific Ocean. And this release is actually planned to take decades. It's not all going to be done at once. You don't have to worry about a ton of radioactive water just being dumped into the ocean. But let's break this down a little bit. You might remember 2011's Fukushima disaster when nuclear reactor meltdowns were triggered by an earthquake and the resulting tsunami. The article starts off by explaining what a nuclear meltdown actually is, which I did not understand before this article, so I'm going to include it for the listeners as well. 
It's when nuclear fuel inside a reactor gets so hot that it starts to melt and clump, which can lead to a runaway chain reaction. To stop this, workers at the plant will fill the reactors with water, and in this case we're talking about 350 million gallons of wastewater. Normally, the water that's used to cool nuclear reactors is in a controlled environment, so it can be pushed out to sea, although that water does become very hot, so many environmentalists disagree with this practice and its impact on local ecology, especially in regions where you have fish, other marine wildlife that the sex of their babies is determined by how warm the water is or their ability to breed at all is determined by how warm the water is. So when you have a point where there's really hot water being added into it, it's going to impact the local ecosystem. It's going to impact the birth rate of certain fish, certain animals. So a lot of environmentalists are are against dumping of wastewater. Um, We're not going to get into that debate today. What we are going to get into is we are seeing water here that is very uncontrolled due to the mixing of water and nuclear material, and that nuclear material comes in the form of radioactive isotopes. The next part, I'm just going to read directly from these authors because I am not an expert on this. They summarize it far better than I could. Um, So rather than try to break it down, I'm just going to quote them as saying, These isotopes are known to make people and animals sick and can even cause cancer over time. So the Japanese government has created a system called the Advanced Liquid Processing System, or ALPS, to filter out several of these radioactive isotopes from the water. But there is one isotope they can't get rid of, and that's called tritium. Tritium is an isotope of hydrogen, and since hydrogen is part of the water itself, there's no filter that they can use to remove it. Tritium is less dangerous than other isotopes and occurs naturally in the environment. And when they say hydrogen is part of water itself, chemical formula for water is H2O, two hydrogens to every oxygen. So that right there explains why they can't remove it. The current plan for this ALPS system is to dilute the water so that every single drop of water contains less tritium than the last. And then eventually, after diluting it as much as they can, it's going to go into the Pacific Ocean, where it'll dissipate and dilute further. Some people are worried about the long-term risks of this plan to dilute and release the water, including Ken Busler of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, who says that even though this dosage isn't going to be enough to make us directly suffer, it's just another one of those things that we're adding to the ocean that makes it overall less healthy. Local fisheries are worried about the impacts these contaminants will have on their catch, their business, and eventually their customers. China has banned seafood imports from the region, and South Korea has seen protests over this decision. Part of the skepticism stems from Japan's lack of transparency after the Fukushima disaster, and that trust has not fully been restored in a number of Pacific Island nations, including those that you know were the location of nuclear testing. So regardless of how safe this specific ALPS system and this method that we have to try to treat this wastewater is, many nations just feel that the choice to put radioactive wastewater into the ocean is irresponsible. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a nuclear physicist or, or a chemist and understand perfectly how this water is going to dissipate and dilute into the Pacific Ocean. But what I will say is this is something that 
you know, you just have to trust the decision makers are doing the right thing. And I fully understand that because of the lack of transparency at the start of this disaster in 2011, why 12 years later, the fallout from it, people are skeptical in, in the choice that's being made here. And I think in this case, if there are other alternatives, those might be good alternatives to pursue. But this is the decision that's been made. And, you know, I hope this is something that we look back on in 15, 20 years and say, you know, the way they handled that was great. And uh, I'm glad that everything went smoothly. But time will tell. And uh, unfortunately, we're just going to have to wait and see. All right. But for now, I'm going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I have two more stories for you. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Exxon says world set to fail two degrees global warming cap by 2050 by MSN's Nicholas Earle. So I'm going to talk about some facts from the article first, and then we will address the incredibly large elephant in the room. So stick around. Uh, This isn't going to turn into some like Exxon bootlicking festival, believe me, but we got to cover some of the things that are brought up first. So Oil and gas are still projected to supply 54% of the global energy demand by 2050, according to ExxonMobil. The company also predicts that in 2050, the world will reach 25 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions related to energy consumption. And that 25 billion number is pretty bad because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, says that we need to limit our carbon emissions to 11 billion metric tons at most. So you do the math there. The International Energy Agency, or IEA, has identified 55 technologies that are needed for us to reach net zero, and Exxon says we are on target with only two of them. Exxon projects CO2 emissions from energy consumption will peak at more than 34 billion metric tons sometime between the next decade as economies and energy demand continue to grow, but then by 2050, that number will decline to 25 billion metric tons. So next, let's talk about why this all matters. And the main thing for me here is that Exxon is the largest U.S. oil and gas company and obviously wants to continue to make money in the future. It is a publicly traded company. 
you can buy it on the stock exchange or buy shares of it rather on the stock exchange. So to say that the industry that they're a part of is still going to be 54%, you know, over half of energy consumption, that is something that will be attractive to investors who maybe don't care as much about investing in companies that are fighting climate change. You know, maybe people who are just looking to make a quick buck or a sustained buck over the next 27 years when they have this data analyzed for. So, you know, I I think you can take a little bit of this with a grain of salt and say that, of course, they're going to say that they're going to continue to be a major player. Of course, they're going to say that they will be important in 27 years. And the fact of the matter is, they're probably right about that. Um, I don't know for certain what those numbers will look like. And hopefully, you know, it's less than 50% of our energy consumption coming from fossil fuels. But for the sake of all of this, let's assume that ExxonMobil is right and we can dissect it from there. To its credit, Exxon is investing $17 billion through 2027 in carbon capture, carbon sequestration, and hydrogen power. But that is absolutely all of the credit that I'm going to give Exxon because they knew about the science behind climate change since 1977 and paid to keep it secret from the public. To me, the analogy that I came up with here is like a plumber inspecting your toilet and knowing that it needs a $100 part to fix it, but not saying anything, letting it get out of control, and then telling you that you know the toilet broke, your bathroom flooded, and it's $10,000 to repair everything. That's what Exxon's coming off as to me here. And my question about it all is, is Exxon only making these projections to say, we won't reach the targets, so who cares? Let's keep fossil fuel energy in place. And I don't know. And I I don't think that anyone's going to be able to answer that except for the, the people behind closed doors at Exxon. But it really frustrates me that, you know, we had this opportunity. We had this real crossroads a while back to say, the climate is warming, it's our fault, and we still have time to do everything we can to fix it. So if I'm ExxonMobil, why not be an early adopter of solar and wind and and really lean into being an energy company and supplying homes, supplying cars with energy and not being an oil and gas company that only focuses on oil and gas? And they didn't do that. You know, they, like I said, they paid to keep information from getting to the public and, and paid to keep information that could have been really critical in helping us address climate change. Probably not right away in 1977, but maybe 15 years in, you know, 1992, before I was even born, maybe we're really kicking things into gear. And unfortunately, we will never know because honestly, Exxon took it from us. And you know, I don't want Exxon to then take the next thing from us, which is our our real last great chance to prevent things from getting to the absolute worst. So I guess my take on this is let's assume Exxon's right and step it up. There's 53 other technologies that the IEA has outlined that says the world needs to reach net zero by 2050. And If we're not on target with those 53, we need better research and development. We need them to be produced at scale. We need them to be rolled out in more places. Because if we aren't on target, and you know the Exxon Mobiles of the world aren't going to help us reach those targets, 
then we're going to need more governmental involvement. We're going to need more private investment into reducing our greenhouse gas emissions as much as we can. We're going to need continued public support. And, and frankly, we're going to need public outrage to, to reach a point where you can't talk about the future of anything without talking about climate change. Um, you know, we did a story a couple couple months ago now about climate change is impacting baseball. So a lot of people turn to sports as an escape from the real world. And as soon as sports become impacted by the real world, you know, we have two options. It's the, the people who will yell, stick to sports, shut up and dribble. Or it's the people that view sports as a really good platform to to use for good. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to just single out sports here, but like conversations with friends, conversations with family members, like let's get ready to have difficult conversations. Let's get ready to organize for politicians that are going to be impacting our climate policies in a good way. And let's get ready to organize against politicians that are funded by your Exxons, your Shells, your BPs, you know, those, those bad actors that are making money off of basically betting against our future. So, you know, I know that was a, a long tangent there, a little bit preachy, but I guess the main takeaway I have for this entire article is like, if we assume Exxon's right and we're not going to reach these targets, then we have a hell of a lot of work to do. So let's get to it. And our last story of the week is from Jamie Keaton of the Associated Press, who writes, as glaciers melt, a new study seeks protection of ecosystems that emerge in their place. So I thought this was an incredibly interesting ecology story where a new study published in August suggests that the world starts preparing for the ecosystems that are going to emerge from glacial melt. As the ice disappears, everything underneath that ice is going to come to the surface. And the article states that if we do nothing to stop climate change, the world will lose glacial ice equivalent to the size of Finland by 2100. Under the best case scenario that was outlined in the Paris Agreement, we're going to lose glacial ice about the size of Nepal. So in any scenario moving forward, there will be glaciers melting in a pretty large amount. And when we think of glaciers, you know, it's really easy to think of your sea ice. It's easy to think of polar bears. But a lot of what we're talking about also is glaciers on land that have been storing carbon underneath them for years and the bad news in glacial melt there is that all of that organic material is going to rise to the top it's going to decay and it's going to see carbon from that organic matter emit into the atmosphere but rather than focus on just that negative side this article brings up you know what can come from glaciers so first let's talk about their importance to our local ecosystems and their continued importance in in human history as well Glaciers reflect sunlight, and they provide fresh water for irrigation, for power generation, and for consumption, according to the study's co-author Jean-Baptiste Bosson. So the importance of glaciers really can't be overstated. The bad news, like I said before, is we're going to lose glaciers, and we're going to lose a sizable amount of ice coverage, but the good news is that nature has the ability to rebound. And while it won't fill that same ecosystem role as a glacier, Boston says that the new ecosystems that emerge can become tomorrow's great forests and great lakes and great fjords. He added that, quote, nature itself will find solutions 
it will capture carbon, it will purify fresh water, and it will create habitats for biodiversity. So this isn't to say that we shouldn't take glacial loss seriously, because we should, and I don't want anyone to think, oh, Matt's out here saying that if we lose the glaciers, we'll get an awesome forest and some incredible lakes in return. No, that's not how we should look at this. We should do everything that we can to limit the impact of losing all of this land and sea ice. And, you know, it's not only important for the animals that live in these glacial environments, but for the people who have called these regions home for centuries and built civilization around glacial mountains, around glacial towns. But in areas where glaciers do shrink or do disappear entirely, we may not have a total loss if the new ecosystems are protected and are allowed and encouraged to thrive. The story may not have all the answers, but to me it provides a source of hope around plan B if plan A fails. But until then, we need to fight like hell for plan A, and to bring this back to our last story, prove ExxonMobil wrong. You know, prove all of those oil and gas companies that profit off of system that has helped certain members of society get incredibly wealthy, but is now and probably always has been doing far more damage to the planet's health than the economic growth will be worth in the future and maybe has ever been worth. So that's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. We aren't going to release a mini-sode this September due to some scheduling issues. I will be away this weekend. Nick couldn't record for this week, so we're just going to take the mini-sode off. Also, it's going to be Labor Day on Monday in the States, so our next episode will be released a week from today on Friday, September 8th. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music that you hear throughout. You can follow him on SoundCloud to hear more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash budlincape. That is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Friday.